Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. She's Ann Friedman. She is Amina Tuso. Woo! <laughs> she is feeling tired today. She is falling <laughs> apart, is what I was going to say. <laughs> she, her life is in shambles. Oh, um, she is day one menstrual, and her sewer is not working, so she can't flush the toilet. That's uh, how she's doing today. <laughs> I'm so sorry, baby. That's awful. It's fine. Bo- body issues really like close to the surface today in every <laughs> sense. Like that's what's happening. <laughs> how are you? Uh, today is the kind of day that I realized that I use the word tired casually all the time because today I actually feel very tired and there's like no other word fits you know tired is one of those words like love where it is totally contextual the meaning I hear you like there is tired tired bone tired there is like annoyed tired there is like, yeah. kind of bored tired there's a million different experiences yeah. T- I feel really grateful that there are always people that you can look up to when you feel like your tank is empty you know Oh, tank refillers, my favorite people. (laughs) Yes. And so today on the podcast, I talked to Glennon Doyle about her new book, Untamed. And yeah, like a real tank filler. I have to tell you, I became acquainted with Glennon's work when I went to like a live Oprah Super Soul Sessions, ostensibly for kind of like work research purposes. And when she came on stage, I will confess to you that I really kind of judged her based on her presentation. Oh, God, like, what is this chipper Christian mainstreamy woman going to tell me about the world that is going to feel revelatory? And um And I do feel like by the end of her, whatever it was, 10 minutes on stage, I was a full convert. I was like, I actually do really want to hear what this woman has to say about the world and her place in it. Ah, I love a conversion story. So thank you for that. Um, Love a story about my judgmental nature being shut down by reality. I love that narrative. (laughs) I listen, I love that narrative because it's so easy to have really strong feelings about people that you think are different from you or people who have like tapped into an energy that you don't kind of understand, you know? And it's just really easy to be like, oh, like this is phony or it's not real. And um, it's not for me. Right. Right. Like, or, yeah. or that it's just not for you. And I and I think that a thing like a pattern that I am really trying to break out of actually is I was like, you know, anyone who is like a who is on the side of liberation, whether it's like emotional or spiritual or physical, like is I'm like, that's a side I'm trying to be on. So actually, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to really listen. You know, like also sometimes how like a book like really comes into your life at the exact time it's supposed to come into your life. Yes, I love that feeling. There should be a long and beautiful German word for it. Yes, there has to be a German word for it because the week that I read Untamed was like one of those weeks. It was like life was kind of madness. There was not enough time. I just and I'm just like feeling a lot of despair about, you know, like some some things in the world and then some things in my life. And it just really grounded me. It really grounded me. And I think like a thing about um, Glennon's voice and about her body of work is really this, is that she just 
forces you as a reader or as a listener, if you happen to be in the same room as her, to like really reckon with yourself and to ask a lot of questions about the kind of life that you want to have. I think that it's a conversation that a lot of people are trying to have, but she does it in this really powerful way. And I have to say, all of time stopped for me because I really needed to hear that and I really needed to ask myself all those questions in that moment. Oh, I love that. And I also am really excited too about the way that that experience of connection with a writer or a book can sometimes feel unexpected. I mean, the way the way you were like, oh, right, like this came into my world at the right time. Like that feeling is always a surprise for me. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I found a thing I needed here. It's always so pleasant. <laughs> Untamed is a memoir. And if you've read uh, Glennon's previous books, I think that you should really run to read this one also because they just all build on each other. And also I was like, wow, never a boring day in the life of this like very generous human. And if you haven't read Glennon's previous books, you might be familiar with her because around the time her last one was coming out, there was a lot of really tabloidy, maybe not a lot, there were definitely a few very tabloidy articles about her personal life because the last book was about her marriage, um, which she, she'd been married to a man for several years. They had three kids together. And around the time she was about to go on the road promoting this last book, which is about essentially her choice to stay in that marriage, she met uh, famous soccer star Abby Wambach um, at a book event, essentially fell in love at first sight, and uh, decided to leave her marriage and make a very different set of choices than she had been making up until that point. And I think it's it's important to know that context, um, and also maybe not so important, because in a way, um, Glennon is a master of telling a story that is personal and highly specific to her, um, but at the same time, really finding themes that feel broader and deeper. The book is really about listening to that voice inside of you. Like she calls it the longing inside of each woman and all of the things that you're kind of programmed to do. It's like society says, you're supposed to be a good partner, you're supposed to be a good daughter, you're supposed to be a good mother, employee, friend, like all of the things, right? The good girl programming. And really asking yourself, like, what are the things that you are not content about in your life and how you can, like, free yourself from all of that. I just appreciate it so much. And I honestly, like, I'm finding myself getting a little emotional because I think that I have always come at understanding, like, how I feel about this question, like, from a really, you know, like, feminist praxis kind of book, you know? Explain to me the structure and explain to me the, you know, like, all of the the machinations that are at play here. And there is something like so beautiful and human in getting all of that same information, but in a way that is like really just comes from the heart, you know? You're not like in a Feminism 101 class. You're not having an intellectual argument with anyone. It's just like, no, truly, like how do all of these structures like conspire in a really personal way to affect me? And right. how are they felt within your particular body and your particular life? Right. And... There is just something about that that like hit me in a gut level on a way that I was I was really unprepared to deal with. It was just like really beautiful. So Glennon is a great writer and you know like has a wonderful voice, but also is just like a really deeply honest person. Like has a kind of transparency I feel that um, makes you want to be transparent in your own life. And let's keep doing that. More of that. Ugh, let's do more of that. I can't wait to listen to your conversation with Glennon. I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed. 
Untamed. Ooh, Hi, yeah. Glennon. Thank you so much for making the time today. I mean, it's so weird to be on this with you. I listen to you usually What? while I'm like puttering, which is my favorite activity is puttering around my house. So yeah, I've listened to you and Anne for a long time. So this is exciting and a little bit sweaty. Um, don't be sweaty at all. You wrote another book. I did. How does that feel? This one for me is, it's, it's like everything that's been on the tip of my tongue since I was 10 years old. Wow. What It's just what I needed to say about the world, about myself, about women, about men, about all of it, about faith, about sex. Just it's a beautiful thing to feel like, oh, there's nothing like I have. I don't I do not have two selves anymore. Like they've I don't have a secret self and a public self like they've merged completely in this book. And um, there's just nothing left to be afraid of or, or nothing left to hide. That feels really good. There's nothing left to hide. That's giving me, uh, I'm like getting the chills. I feel, I'm someone who I live so much of my life in uh, it's honor or shame. You know, mm. like that's, those are the binaries that I am trying to break out of. And I think some of that is I grew up Muslim and then I went to this like weird evangelical church and had a church phase. And I think that so much of what that reinforced for me was that you either are doing honorable things or you should be ashamed mm -hmm. of of who you are and just to hear you say how freeing it is to see you know to just be able to stand by yourself and say actually this is me this is enough and this is all I can do that seems like a really powerful revelation yeah and it and so it's interesting because so much of that shame stuff for me goes back to religion also which is mm -hmm. why that's you know a running theme throughout the book I mean to be you know a woman who in the public eye left her husband for a woman as a mother as you know I did the thing that you're not allowed to do as a woman which is just want more <laughs> right mm -hmm. I mean that's like the story of right, it's like choosing yourself mm -hmm. and then wanting more mm -hmm. and I think that that is one of the things that you know when I fell in love with Abby it was just this very interesting experience for me because I had never been in love before, which I know now. And I fell madly in love with her and it made me really f feel really whole and like comfortable in my own skin um, for the first time. Like kind of you, I, the best way I can describe it is like you're wearing shoes that are like way too tight your whole life. And then you finally like put on slippers or something like that, right? <laughs> the exhale. Right. That, it's yeah. like, oh, uh, like, or you take your bra off after a long day or whatever it was. It was just like, oh, like this is what it's supposed to feel like. Mm. And that was such a revelation to me because I had to go outside of what I'd always been told or expected to choose in terms of love, mm. in terms of sexuality, in terms of all of that. I had to go outside of what I was told was honorable mm -hmm. to find what fit me, which made me wonder if I also needed to go outside of what I had been trained to believe is honorable religion, what I'd been trained to believe is um, honorable womanhood, what I'd been trained to, to believe is honorable motherhood. Yeah. Because one of the reasons why I was so afraid to choose myself was because I was trained to believe, tamed to believe, that when you have a baby, what you then do is slowly die, right? You just give up all of your desire. You give up all of your emotion. You give up your dreams. You give up your imagination because that is what is best for the kid. That's the, the, the what we're sold. And then one day when I'm trying to 
figure all this stuff with Abby, I look at my my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter. She's 11 now. She was nine then. She's looking at herself in the mirror, and I'm putting her hair up, and she says, Mommy, can you do my hair like yours? And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, my God. Every time this child looks at me, she's asking a question. Like, mm. she is saying, how do I, how does a woman do her hair? How does a woman live? How does a woman love and be loved? And I realized, oh, I am staying in this marriage for her. But would I want this marriage for her? Modeling just this idea that you, you're not a person, you're really just a vessel for whatever your family needs. That's right. <laughs> and you can be a martyr and you can do it really well. Mm-hmm. It's like people, people do it all the time. You can outwardly look like you are doing really well, but it is incredibly painful inside. Mm-hmm. And all it is doing is chipping away at that person that is inside. Mm-hmm. And it's going to come out one way or the other. So It's going to come out one right. way or the other, which I know from addiction, it sure does come out one way or the other. To me, it's not just that it's painful inside. It's also a horrible legacy. Mm-hmm. It's so backwards. Like we think that it's like honorable to our children to be martyr parents, but it's not honorable to our children because then we're passing that on to our kids. Mm-hmm. Then the next generation feels guilty for having any sort of self because their mother taught them that real love is not having a self, right? right? It's dying to yourself. Right. So which is the more religious stuff. So it's like um, breaking that idea of like, oh, okay, well, who is that that idea that's been planted in me that mothers are supposed to be martyrs? Who does that serve? <laughs> like all of the ideals and expectations that are placed on women, like a, a good a good woman in every area of her life just slowly disappears and is quiet and takes up no space. Those always serve, not us, not our kids, right? They're to maintain power structures. Yeah. You know, figuring out that what I, what made, what fit me what made me feel finally at peace and in power in my own skin and like I wasn't performing, finding that so outside of the norm, the cultural norm for me, made me want to like just rip out all of the other expectations. Right, it's like, what else don't I know? What else am I just performing that has nothing yeah. to do with my real self, right? And there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that in my life. Right, and you write, um, and you've spoken so much about how, you know, it was the every decision was kind of made from this place of you have to be a good girl. Mm -hmm. And then breaking out of that meant that you found someone that you loved unconditionally and Mm -hmm. you learned so much from that. And I think when a lot of these stories focus on the romance, so much is lost on what it means for your own personal Mm self-knowledge and what it Mm -hmm. means, um, you know, what it means that you are capable of as Mm -hmm. a person. It's like if if you let yourself be loved, then... Like, what can't you do? Yeah. And that message for you is really translating into changing the communities that you were part of mm-hmm. because you are no longer performing that other good girl. Mm-hmm. You are finally yourself. Yeah, in lots of different ways. I mean, in faith and in activism and in even in gender stuff and, and certainly in sexuality. Um, yeah, I mean, because what it came down to When I decided to leave my marriage, I had no, I mean, Abby and I had never spent a minute alone together at the time that I told Craig I was leaving. Like, we had never been alone in a room together. We had spent that, we had met one night at a book event, (laughs) 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 launching my epic marriage redemption story. So that was inconvenient (laughs) as all hell. But we had never, from that evening, which we spent with a bunch of other writers on like a dais in front of hundreds of librarians, we had never spent a minute alone together. So for me, I knew that there was a very small chance 
that this thing with Abby, I mean, it did turn out to be my wife. So but we're, like, we're here now. Right, right. We're here now. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But at the, mo- at the time, the chances were slim, and I knew that. But I couldn't unknow what I now knew, knew yeah. which was that that thing, I didn't, I didn't have that. What do you think is the thing? Because I think that when, you know, you assess yourself, and I think it's a thing that we all do, you minimize a lot of the the courage that it turns out has been inside of you the whole time. It's everything just seems scary. It's like, I can't do this. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you get there? I just, I wonder in, you know, and you spend so much time self-reflecting, what do you think it is about yourself that, that just like gave you the drive and the courage to do that? Okay, well, first of all, I don't know. I feel like I can give you my best answer for right now. I mm-hmm. feel like, and it's so funny to do, like, okay, I wrote Karen Warrior, and then I t- tried to talk about myself then, and then I wrote Love Warrior, and I tried to talk about myself then. And you just have a different perspective on yourself each five years, I guess. I feel like I'm, um, you know, when you go get your eyes examined, and they put on, like, new lenses, yes, and they're like, the does, this look, clearer? does <laughs> this look clearer? Does this look clearer? Does this look clearer? It all looks the same. <laughs> yes. But you're just like, B, I guess, B. So I can give you my... My the new lens of of forty three, um, I think that I knew when I got sober that the only way to stay sober for me was to minimize that two life thing, right? To like find myself, like that voice in the stillness. You know that. Everybody has it. You know when you get really still and you just have that knowing, like you know Mm -hmm. it's a nudge, it's whatever it is. Like some people call it God, some people call it intuition. Some it's just like that knowing that you have inside of yourself. I have since I got sober and started practicing being in touch with that knowing, have learned to believe it above any other thing. Even when every person in my life, everyone is saying you can't do that which was what was happening when I told all the people that I was just real quick going to get divorced six weeks before my epic marriage redemption story came out <laughs> and was just accidentally in love with a female Olympian, right? I It has not steered me wrong, even when it seems like the dangerous thing or the uncomfortable thing. If I stick to that knowing, that inner knowing, even if there's like a bunch of chaos that happens in the in the middle part, it all lands exactly where it should. Yeah. And that just keeps happening over and over again. And I had had enough practice over my 15 years of sobriety before that happened to trust that knowing, regardless of what the outside voices were, were saying to me, that when I got to that one, which was like a pretty a doozy of one, you know, like there she <laughs> is, deal. that's your person. I had just trusted enough. And my sister, who's my person, um, had watched me trust that enough. That she was even, she was like, all right, let's do this behind me on everything. And when I have my sister beside me, you know, I always say, if my sister is for me, who can be against me? Like, she's my, <laughs> she kind of blocks for me. So we kind of did it together. And as always, that thing about, you know, there's no such thing as one-way liberation. I knew that if I stuck to what was, that if I rejected the idea, which is another lie that women are told, that I can't do, I can't follow my heart. I can't have what I need because that will be mutually exclusive to what my people need. Yeah. Right? If I choose myself, that is inherently going to be bad for everybody else. That's also horseshit. Like, that's not the way it works. Like, what is true and beautiful for me is also going to inevitably be true and beautiful for my people. And that's what's happened. There was a lot of chaos and a lot of whatever and a lot of dust up. And now... 
Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. This is truly... Everybody's fine. I started reading the book when I was on vacation with my family. It's the first time in kind of over a decade that our entire family has been together mm. for for various, like, chaotic family reasons. And the whole time I was like, well, you know, my Zoloft is working really well because that's how I can be on this vacation. <laughs> Amen. Just, like, even a day ago, I couldn't imagine it. And so... To, to read all of the stuff that you write about, you know, like this blended family <laughs> coming together was that really spoke to me in so many ways, because mm. for such a long time, I always had this idea that everybody else's family was perfect, mm. except for my family. <laughs> my family is the the, the nutty the family. One. To my the sister one. who's listening, we, you know, like we we're doing great, babe. <laughs> we're hanging in there. But, you know, there was always just this idea and so much shame tied to the fact that I Mm -hmm. thought everyone else had this perfect family. Mm -hmm. And there was something so healing for me reading about your your own kind of chaos Mm -hmm. and how your family comes together. That was like, oh, that it's okay to have some of that chaos because we sometimes it's nobody's fault. Mm -hmm. And there was something about just the way that you wrote about how everyone in your family was reacting to all of these big changes that made me feel like I could be on that vacation with my family. I was like, great. I was like, everyone is going through it. And also maybe instead of focusing on what is the image of the family that we're not, focusing more in this place of saying, like, how can we be the best people that we can be to each other? You know, and how can we support each other's dreams? Because I think that you're so right in identifying this thing of if you choose yourself and you choose what is beautiful and good for you, you have a fear that it will not translate for everyone else. Like, I... My idea of like being a good sibling is that I have to deny myself everything and then, you know, Mm -hmm. and then it's like everyone, everything else works. Like, you know, it's like that emoji with the brain exploding. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Other people have families that are (laughs) not perfect? This is nuts to me. I mean, don't you think that's the same idea, though, of letting go of this idea that you've been sold about Mm -hmm. what makes a perfect family? Like, what makes a good family? What makes a good woman? What makes a good uh, Christian? What makes a good Muslim? What makes a good... It's like... This magical thing when it's that idea that everything's wrong is just the picture in our head of the way things are supposed to be. Yeah. And when you let go of that, and that picture has always been planted by somebody who's selling you something. Exactly. Always. Always. Why, do, why am I depressed? Oh, yeah, capitalism. Like, it's <laughs> always the answer. <laughs> right? So yeah. just it's that moment of surrender of like, oh, yeah, if there's no if there's no way that a family is supposed to be, then I guess I might as well just hang out with these people I've been given. I mean, I, you know, that's the message for me. I'm just like, oh, I'm just here. I'm not perfect, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. And so the, the mess that you have here is what we're gonna all going to work with. It's what we got. I'm like, it's what we got. But I think that if everybody operates on that level, then, um, you know, sometimes magic happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. It's a place of you really have to trust that everyone is everyone is sharing where they're coming from, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's why I think so much of your work connects with so many people because you say the thing that so many people don't realize they're allowed to say in the first place. Mm. You know, it's like you just, you give permission to say, okay, everything's not perfect. Or here, you know, like, here is my fear. Here is my hope. Here is my goal. And I think that even as someone who works in this medium where we tell stories all the time, I am constantly surprised how much so many people don't tell their story. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of holding back that is... You know, I'm like, you can't break out of that unless mm-hmm. you unless you're free to say what you think and what you want. Mm-hmm. And that's because they think that there's a way that they're, that they're supposed to be and that they're not that way. 
And so that's the shame, right? This like whoever they are, whatever their past has been, whatever their feelings are, whatever their relationship is, it doesn't match this cultural idea of whatever that thing is supposed to be. And that's the split, right? That's where we get shame. And I think I just learned, I've, I learned, and I, I feel like everyone should go through recovery, right? Recovery from addiction is like where you learn that the only way to survive is to, 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 to say the thing, to say the thing that you think you can't say. Right, because you're just, you have to say it. Right. That's what, the, the only thing that will, it's not the pain of life that takes you out of the game. It's the shame about the pain of life that then, then you keep it inside and then it just infects everything. You were saying earlier before we started recording that part of why you think you are always early to things <laughs> is because you think that it's a it's a kind of un, like it's a learning from being in recovery. Yeah, and I'm, I'm being drunk, right? Being drunk. I'm curious time. if you would like talk a little bit more about that. Well, so I became bulimic when I was ten, and then that morphed into alcoholism, and then I stayed drunk for much of my life but not like it was like a a problem sick sad drunk for till I was 25 and I found out I was pregnant and I got sober and when you spend your your kind of formative years or your early adulthood as a alcoholic you end up hurting a lot of people you end up being the person that no one can depend on you are kind of like a joke in your friend group, you're a disappointment in your family, you're the one who doesn't show up for the baby shower, you're the one who makes an ass out of yourself at the wedding, whatever. So you kind of develop this um, self-concept that's like, I'm irresponsible. I'm so, so I got sober when I was 25, and I guess what I was joking about is that I, my sister would tell you, I have a late phobia. It's not normal. It's like if I am more than five minutes late, my heart will start going, my my hands will start sweating. And I think it's because I'm always just trying to prove that I'm responsible now. <laughs> you know, I'm like trying to, I don't know if it's like, it's not really a making up for all of that. It's just that at my heart of hearts, I never know if I was a responsible person my whole life and I was just, you know, that was being covered by the alcohol or if like I'm actually an irresponsible person, I'm just acting now. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not sure. So I do think that, I guess, I don't know if it's leftover shame, but it's like a leftover, um, it doesn't feel like shame. It just feels like a little bit of identity confusion. Let's take a quick break. about like the process of writing this you write you know there's like so, so many parts of your life and some of it is so personal how do you this is like truly a selfish question as someone who just wrote a memoir mm -hmm. how do you like square all of that with um the fact that there are you know there are people very close to your life who the book is also about 
Like, do you just write it all and then you're like, here's the book, read it and tell me what you think? Or are you in conversation with your family and with Abby? And are you like, are you negotiating all the things that you're writing about as you're writing about them? Well, I guess a little bit of both. Um, I, first of all, I know that there are writers who, you know, I think Anne Lamont says, well, if they wanted me to write better about them, they should have behaved better. Like, there's, there's that, <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah. that strategy, which I think is, Admirable. I admire that. I love strategy. it for someone else. <laughs> me too. Me too. But I can't and don't do it that way. I I don't think that there's ever been like you know a person in my real life or that I've used as a character in my memoir or my that is doesn't come across as their best self, like as the most loving, true. If there's a butt of any joke in an essay, it's going to be me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm never like. If there's two people in a story, if it's like me and Craig, you're going to learn about like the strength of humanity from Craig and the bullshit from my behavior is how I like try to write it, which luckily isn't hard. That's actually actually pretty consistent, especially being married to Abby with how it goes. But with Craig, I always give him, send him everything that I'm writing. With this book, it was so, uh, he's, I don't know why he's so freaking supportive of my writing, but he is. And he read the whole book, and he just asked me to change one sentence that was about Tish. It was just something wow. that he felt like wasn't – that maybe a few years from now she wouldn't love. And thought, he thought all of his parts were beautiful, which I thought was amazing. And Abby um, is – Abby, her favorite thing on earth is when I write about her or talk about her. Like after every <laughs> podcast, I, she'll, afterwards I'll call her and she'll go, did you talk about me? What did you say? Like she – she loves when I talk about her, but she is so uncomfortable with me talking about sex, which is wow, yeah, interesting. I know it's very interesting. She's like very obsessed with talking about sex privately with me, me and her, which is a new thing for me. I could start sweating now thinking about <laughs> like the amount because I've never talked about sex in my life with anyone. But then, when I'm talking about it in public. It, it, it kills her to death. So the essay that I wrote in the book about sex. Sorry, Abby. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, babe. <laughs> Hi, babe. Just just press mute now was a fun exercise because it was like I, I wanted to write it in a way that she thought was beautiful, that made her proud and not uncomfortable. So that was kind of like a back and forth. And when I gave it, it wasn't really wasn't that much of a back and forth. It was a back and forth with myself. Mm-hmm. And then I, like, gave it to her separately, then the whole book, and she loved it. But she, even when she was reading it, she was going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, though. You find out everyone's, uh, you know, like, what their thing is. Yes. Because everyone everyone has their own boundaries, which Mm -hmm. I really respect. Mm -hmm. People are different, man. I know. Um, But you know what I do? I don't do that with my parents. I don't ask mm. their permission. I feel like I try to be really generous being a parent now, I know you just freaking do the best you can with what you have. And they did a kick-ass job. And also there are some things that could be discussed. (laughs) But I just feel like I'm being generous and I don't feel like asking for permission. Isn't that another good boundary? Right, 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 right. So I guess it's different for everybody. Um, You and your sister are very close. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, you have that relationship that I'm like, yeah, like your sisters, but also you are friends. Oh, yeah. Which is such a distinction when you have a sibling, you know? Mm-hmm. You're definitely like, 
there are the siblings that are your friends and then the siblings that are your Your siblings. siblings. (laughs) You know, and so, which is the thing that people with siblings understand. Mm -hmm. You're like, great. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about how that friendship, like, develops in, like, the older that you get? Because I think that that's, you start having to lean on your siblings for really adult, you know, like, kind of shit. And... It does feel very different if your sibling is your friend versus just a member of your family. Yeah, and I can't, like, for my sister and I, like, friend, whatever we are is, like, not, it's beyond that. It's like, I I would almost think that if I, if I weren't so committed to never changing it ever, that it's almost like codependent, like, like we're like um, barnacles on each other. <laughs> right? Like it's not what we go to through feels like if it's happening to her, it doesn't feel any different than it's happening to me. Actually, I think it's worse. It's worse. If something happens to her, it's worse for me than it is for her. And if something happens to me, it's worse for her. I mean, mm. we've been through so much and and I was so sick for so long and she was so scared for so long. And then there was this point because we were inseparable, and then I kind of fell into addiction and was just gone for so long. And then at some point, you know, with an addict, you get to the point where she said this so beautifully recently. She said that there was a point in my addiction that she had to stop trying because she knew if she didn't put up a boundary with me that if I ever did get sober, there would be nothing left, which I thought that was so brilliant. Like, it's so hard to offer anyone any wisdom during addiction because... It's such a freaking mess. But that I thought was really important. Like make sure that you don't get past the point of no return when the person yeah. – so that there's something left, you know. The day I decided to get sober, she's the one who p- literally picked me up off the floor and took me to my first meeting. And ever since then, you know, she went through a divorce and then moved into my house and we went through that together. And then she moved to Rwanda. She she was a lawyer and she – went there to to help prose- prosecute um, child sex offenders in Rwanda. And I was so upset that she left, but it's not like I could be like, stay with me. Don't go prosecute so- child sex offenders. Like, that Don't go been do your of- iconic <laughs> job. Stay here. Right. I mean, trust me, I did say that. <laughs> I mean, because that's a who thing I am. siblings do. <laughs> right. Because that's just who I am. But, you know, when she was gone, that was the first time I'd been left alone. I mean, my life, like she's my my person, my – and so when she left, that was scary as shit. And that also is when I started writing because she brought – I wrote this thing on Facebook that went crazy. She brought me a computer to my home when she came back for – whether it was Christmas or something. And she brought me a laptop and she said, you will – I have to go back. I'm going to go do my job. But you're going to get up every morning and you're going to write and you're going to write using that voice that you used in that Facebook post. Because this is what you were born to do. I still have the letter that she gave me with the computer um, in my office. Um, and so I did because I just do what my sister tells me to do, you know. And um, so in many ways, she's what started this. It's so – it's so inter- it's all so intertwined, yeah. you know. Everything with Together Rising, everything with my career, we're doing together. There's nobody on my team who doesn't know that, like – my sister runs the show. <laughs> you know, I think people probably think, oh, that's so sweet that Glennon's sister works for her. It's like the total opposite, right? No, it's like we're, we're working together in tandem exactly. to free the world. And we're like two halves and, and, and we're, we have different strengths completely. Yeah. 
when it comes to friendship, I do think that it's kind of it was it was so interesting when I fell in love with Abby because it was like, oh my God, there's like a third of us now. Like it was a little bit jarring at first. I think there was a little of like, wait, what do we do with another girl? Like husbands <laughs> are one thing, but this is like encroaching territory, right? So that was a shakeup and thank God now they are we're like a braid, the three of us. So one of the things I love so much about your work is that it's just so it's such a loss that we don't talk more about different types of love stories besides this like romantic thing. My relationship with my sister since I was born has been the great love of my life, you know. Yeah. Um until now, Abby. Hi, Abby. We we know that you're the one now. We got you. You can take your That's headphones. Right. You can put your headphones <laughs> back, back on from the sex moment. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> She's still not listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're so right to identify that, and it's why I was asking about your relationship with your sister because I think that, you know, there's so many scripts for how how you can be a family, but there are also a lot of scripts for how you can be in love, mm-hmm. and being in love also can mean so many different things, right? It's like, are you are you in love that you with someone that you are sexually compatible with? Are you in love with someone who, you know, you just love them in this very deep platonic way? And who is to say that those two things are not as explosive Absolutely. as the other? And there's there's so many scenarios for that. And I think that there's something so much is lost because the script that we prioritize is this romantic script, which I think also honestly does a disservice to people who are in romantic relationships, especially like straight people who are in romantic relationships, because you feel so boxed into this is the script and this is what you do. And then, you know, it's like, here's the picket fence. Here's the children. Here's the how we talk about each other. And I'm like, that's its own kind of jail. It's so, a cage. It's you know, a cage. And I'm then like, we wonder why people need to bust out. Right. And it also just doesn't honor that, um, you know, people people need all sorts of different things and they need them from different people in their lives. Mm-hmm. And Part of why your work connects so many people is it, it is that thing. It is saying like, okay, I'm not weird. I'm not different. I'm not, um, there's no norm. Mm, there's no norm. The norm is that you should just say what you have on your heart. Like there's that no is, norm. you. like everyone is the, you are the. And you get to figure it out. Right. For yourself. You, get, you don't have to match yourself to some other idea of what that thing is supposed to be. You get to figure it out. Like you, you, somebody makes up the norms and we are all somebody, right? Like we yeah. all get to make – I mean I've, I've been thinking of it so much recently with the, even the word mother. Like the question now is are you a mother or not? What does that mean? Like I just read a Sumant Kid's new book, which is so freaking beautiful. And, and her – what she's the one question in it that got me so much is she said, what will you choose to mother into the world? Like it's not just an identity that you have that – did you have – babies out of your vagina or adopt it's not it's like whatever you're nurturing into the world that is that's what you're the definition of mothering right yeah. it's and and i think it's so cool because i've always played with that in my mind because some of the people that i actually go to the most for par- for parenting advice and who i think mother me the best in the world have no children like liz gilbert was one of my best friends and i almost exclusively ask her for parenting advice She's one of the most nurturing, mothering people that I've ever met in my life. And so even shifting that whole, like, this is what a mother is supposed to look like and turning it into a verb, you know, it's like an energy. It's a creating, nurturing energy. I mean, it's like all of, you're right. It's like all the scripts are about putting people in, it just, it puts you in your place, Mm -hmm. right? It's like the place where you are a compliant person, you are a... 
you're not rocking the boat. So much of this kind of personal growth is really just, yeah, for as cliche as it sounds, it's like, yeah, you gotta just be okay with being uncomfortable mm-hmm. because that comfort is actually not comfort. Exactly. It's, it's compliance. Us. You know it's what I mean? It's just, us. it's a kind of compliance that you don't understand. But the minute that you know, the minute that you know a little bit different, like it's, you can't live that way anymore. Mm-mm. And, and, and I, it's so hard. And here's the deal. Like I, I, okay, this is gonna sound so cheesy, but I actually believe it's the answer to saving our world. Okay, I, I do. Because tell me, tell okay. me everything. All right. Yeah, my secret belief is I don't think that we should just all, you know, step out of line and out of our cages and out of our social norms because it feels good and because then we'll have amazing lives, which is true. Okay. It will feel good and we will have amazing lives. But over time, we have that there's this thing that happens. We're born, we're born with these inherent selves, with this potential for like this one thing that we can release onto the earth, like our beingness, our self, our whatever. But then we are socially programmed. We start to internalize our social programming around 10. Okay, that's when we start to lose ourselves in order to fit into all these categories that that culture has put in front of us. You are a girl. This is how good girls act. You are a Christian. This is how good Christians act. You are a white woman. This is how what white women know and, and pretend they don't know. This is what uh, an American does. This is what – and all of these lanes were put in where we have to perform our role. And the reason that we have to perform our role is so that we can have belonging because each of those is a pack of people. And we know inherently that we need a pack to survive. And the second we step out of that, we will be shamed by the pack. I think that – Evolutionarily, it makes sense. We have had to stay quiet and we've had to stay in line so that we could have the protection of the pack for our survival. But I think at this moment in time, our survival depends on us resisting that urge completely, reversing it even, that the future of our planet, of religion, of our democracy, all depends upon people now abandoning the pack enough to reclaim their own integrity. Right, because imagine a world where you know Republican Congress people stopped just pretending not to know the truth or refusing to know the truth so that they could toe the party line. Right? Imagine if a bunch of Catholic churchgoers, people of faith, actually said hell no to the abuse scandal and walked out of the pews. Right? Imagine if men started stepping out of line with patriarchy. Imagine if white women started stepping out of line with white supremacy. Imagine if employees at corporations who are ruining the earth started to step out of line. I mean, I think the return to self and the return to integrity at the expense of the pack is our only hope. Mm. It's so interesting hearing you talk about this because I think that, you know, you and um, Abby have been really vocal in talking to, you know, like the white woman pack. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a world where we are preaching solidarity and we, you know, like we're saying that we're all allies, what it means to to both like understand your privilege maybe and to and to use it in ways that are helpful to everyone. And I remember like Anne interviewed you maybe a couple of years ago mm-hmm. in in New York magazine and, and really like the thrust of that piece was that. And I think that over the years you have someone who've been who's who has been very vocal about the fact that some a huge portion of your audience is white women. Mm-hmm. You know, like, are you seeing something shift? Do you think that it's been useful? Do you find, are there things that are making you feel more hopeful? Because, you know, every day it just seems like more doom and gloom mm-hmm. all the time. And I really reject the doom and gloomness of it all mm-hmm. because it's just like, for me personally, I'm like, that is not a way I could, like, I can't live life if I get, you know, like if there's not one thing to look forward to right. every day. You don't even drink coffee, um, so you yeah. have nothing else to I don't to even drink coffee. To. I'm not just thinking about the election that's coming up, right. but I think that over the last three years and four years, 
you know, I'm just like, if as women, we can't even find a way to be, you know, like not on message, but really aware where I'm like, okay, I trust that everyone is doing their little, <laughs> you know, everyone is pulling their however amount of weight that they're pulling. I just have a really hard time seeing like, how are we going to change the world mm-hmm. if we can't change this one? You know, like it's not a small thing, right. but I was like, if this thing is not working, mm-hmm. how can everything else work? I mean, I I would just, just being completely honest with you, I nothing comes to mind right away in terms of like the rhetoric getting better or the conversation getting more open or easier at the moment. I will tell you that Together Rising and the way that that's working is giving me, that's what keeps me going in terms of hope. It's not the freaking Twitter conversations or like... What, you're not having scintillating, <laughs> amazing philosophical debates on social media God. like the rest of us? I mean, that's... Wild. N- uh, that's, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, although I will tell you that my Instagram community is pretty thoughtful and nuanced and badass. I, 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 I have some very good conversations I'm just waiting until someone ruins that for us. No, I they love can't. Instagram, I know. They can't. I will fight. I will fight <laughs> for my Instagram community. Um, sometimes I think, okay, those conversations or what's happening is not like as real to me mm-hmm. as what goes on with Together Rising. Like that's real. And one of the cool things that we have, you know, our job is to, we fundraise, we crowdsource money for different causes. And um, we have raised $24 million, I think, at this point. And that is awesome. But not the coolest thing. The coolest thing to me is that a long time ago, when we started answering um, the call to these different crises going on in the world, whether it was like the Syrian refugee crisis or the, uh, the families being separated at the border, we started talking to people on the ground like that's we just start one of our our um priorities was like no secondhand sources like we are gonna go we're gonna talk to the people who are being affected by these things and figure out who's on the ground already doing the work what we hear is people are in their homes they learn about something in the world people are good their hearts break they want to give they want to do their little part right but the people that they often end up giving to are the big organizations because they know about the big organizations because those are the people with the big marketing dollars. What we found over and over again that to, in today's world where the crises are happening fast and we need the the help on the ground fast, it's not working to give funds to those organizations anymore because every time you talk to them, all right, we've got $78,000. Here's what we see going on the ground. Here's what's needed. And it will literally be like, okay, so we'll get, we can, we hear you and we'll get back to you in six weeks or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Like, we need it by 7 p.m. You know, like, wow. so over and over again, after this happens for a while, you're like, okay, we need to find this. We have found the, in any scenario, that the most effective, scrappiest, most respected groups, Boots on the ground groups are almost always led by women, and they are disproportionately led by women of color. They don't get the funds. So what's hopeful to me is that we have a situation going on with Together Rising where we're like a bridge, right, between all these brokenhearted people in their houses, who, by the way, are mostly white women, right? That's my demographic. They're giving funds, and those funds are going directly to largely women of color, not always, on the ground, doing the important hard work that they've been doing forever. And that feels hopeful to me, that there's like this connection happening. So I think about Together Rising when I think about hope, and I also think about my actual life that I can touch in my, because I live in Naples, Florida. So it's like the Trumpiest Trump that ever Trumped land. It's like, 
Okay, there's like one other gay person in Naples, and she lives with me. (laughs) (laughs) So glad y'all found each other. Right, 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 right. (laughs) So it's fascinating to live there because um, it puts me in the situation where I'm always, always, forever having to practice what I preach, which is that I'm always having to fucking say something. Like, and honestly, usually doesn't go well. I'm not like saying it always like ends in this amazing, you know, illuminating experience where we see each other's side and like sometimes it just gets really uncomfortable and then it's awkward to see each other for a while. But I actually have had a few good conversations with people after moments like that and it makes me more committed to the idea of stepping out of line a little bit and saying the weird, uncomfortable thing. Like often for me, it'll be like, we'll be talking about the schools that our kids go to or something, and and I'll tell them where my kids go to school. And they'll be like, really? Like, your kids go there. (laughs) What those people? And they don't add that, but that's what it means. That's that's always what that means. Right, but like you're supposed to get away with the really. And what Brittany Packneck taught me, which the strategy is so good, because for a while I was just doing speeches. What Brittany taught me is you just, when you hear that, you just add, ask questions. Because like racism, homophobia, misogyny, it doesn't stand up to questioning. So my favorite thing to do is just, when I get the, really, is just to stay there and keep asking questions. Like, oh, wait, you look confused. What do you mean? And then it's like, oh, well, I just mean, you know, because it's just a different, like, there's different, and it's like, different What? You make them say it. Eventually, you get to like that thing that's that's hidden, that's not allowed to be hidden anymore. It's just not allowed to be hidden. Like if you're gonna say it, you're just gonna have to fucking say it. I think that those are the things I care about much more than like the Twitter shit. Is like so much posturing and performing that I really can't. I very much. I have had those conversations in real life over and over again, and I know how freaking uncomfortable and hard they are. And I don't believe that ninety percent of the people on Twitter are having those conversations in real life. I think it's very much easier to be brave on Twitter than it is to be brave at the bus stop. Oh, are you kidding me? 100%. Um, Well, you're about to go on this, like, very big book tour. A lot of people will be talking about your books. Who do you want this book to speak to? And what do you want people to walk away knowing? Mm. So the person that I most want the book to speak to is the person that I thought about the entire time I wrote it, the person I dedicated it to, the person who's woven throughout the entire book, which is my daughter, Tish. This is so weird, but I often think like, okay, so if I only have one more book left, like if I die soon, which is the book that I would want to leave for my kids? So weird. Tish is, I have changed the way that I think about myself through raising Tish because Tish is... um, a really, really sensitive kid. And I was a really, really sensitive kid. But I thought there was something wrong with me because I was so sensitive. So that's why I started numbing myself out with food and then lost myself for a really long time. So I actually have had this narrative in my head my whole life that's like, I'm broken, I'm crazy. Like, I mean, when I've been in therapy my whole life, I've been medicated my whole life, I've been to a mental hospital, like there's been some corroborating evidence to my (laughs) narrative. So anyway... Raising Tish and watching her, she 
her heart breaks for things in a way that is, well, it's highly inconvenient. <laughs> it's like annoying as shit sometimes, honestly. <laughs> and so I can see how a child like me would make a family want to tell her she's too much. But what I know now to be true is that the sensitivity that I had when I was little that I thought meant that there was something wrong with me is the same sensitivity now that makes me a good writer. So what I know now is that there was never anything wrong with me. The stuff that I was born with that made my life a little bit hard in the beginning is exactly the stuff that I was born with because I needed to use it to get my, my work done on the earth. Consider the revolutionary idea that there was never anything wrong with us except for the idea that there was something wrong with us. I will take that. Clennon, thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you for being extra. Thank you for <laughs> giving us permission to be extra. Mm. And uh, yeah, just really thank you for always creating space for people to say like where they're at and who they are and who they hope to be. Mm. Like, it means a lot. So thank Same you. Same to you. Same to you. And next time I hear you, I'll be in my home on my phone listening to you on the Call Your Girlfriend. Thanks for the work that you do. Glennon Doyle. Ugh, Glennon Doyle forever, really. Truly, um, deeply. <laughs> queen, queen of being a revolutionary. I love it. Queen of feelings. Queen of revolutionary feelings. Like, yeah, really on, a, on an emotional level. I feel like this book is something that is going to change a lot of people's experience of the world. I really do. Yeah, you know, and it really, I, when people take the time to share the truth about their life, it really changes people. It changes people, and it's, like, one of the most generous things that someone can do for another human. So, um, like, more kindness and more transparency. That's what I want this week in my life. More truth. No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) NBD. All right. I'll see you on the Internet. Okay, boo-boo. I'll see you on the Internet. Take care of yourself. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delva.